Sky King, Sky King, do not answer. Victor. Foxtrot. Authentication. Tell the golf. I say again. Sky King, Sky King, do not answer. This is Collapse Health. From London, England. A podcast about mysteries, the paranormal, and phenomena. You are listening to Anomaly. Here is your host, Gledders. Hello from London, this is Gledders, and you're listening to Anomaly. This time, episode two. Thanks for all the great feedback after our first episode. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter at AnomalyCast. If you follow us, we'll follow you straight back, and we'll also try to give you a shout-out in a future episode. Apologies for a couple of audio glitches on this episode. It was a Skype problem, and uh, as with all new things, we're working it out. Uh, We'll get the mind out, hopefully, for the next episode. This time around, we speak to a man who's been investigating a potential crash of a UFO in the Welsh mountains. You make your mind up as we talk to Scott Felton. As ever, Steve is with us. Hi Steve, how are you? Good, you? Good man, yes, all fine, thank you. And our guest for today, Scott Felton. Hello Scott. Hi there. How are you? Well, I should say Noswetha, good evening. (laughs) Oh, I like that. Okay, Um, so you're in North Wales? Yes. Is that somewhere that you've lived for a long time? Were you born there? I wasn't born in North Wales, but I've lived in North Wales in various places across North Wales for the last 27 years. Okay. Originally uh, Liverpool, with the accent might give that away. <laughs> sure. Okay. Excellent. So, uh, how close are you to the area that we're going to be talking about? As the crow flies, uh, 15 miles. 15? Yeah. Okay, that's fine. So, you, would you consider yourself a local? Uh, in, in respect to the bear ones, yeah. Um, Scott, you're an independent investigator and ufologist, is that fair to say? Allegedly, yeah. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> and what is the subject you're going to be talking to us about today? Um, the Berwyn Mountains UFO incident of the 23rd of January 1974. So it's a while ago. Um, how old were you in 1974? Oh, God knows. <laughs> I'll tell you, 12. <clears throat> okay. Um, do you actually remember anything from back at that time from the news? Not, nothing at all. Okay. So, at what stage did you get interested in this incident? I actually took an interest in it um, round about uh, 2000. Uh, but that was uh, purely linked to events which uh, overtook me, personal events. Okay. Going back to 1997. And by um, 2002, I was in touch with uh, Margaret Fry, who was the uh, woman who first uh, unearthed this um, event, as it were, brought it to the public's attention, and she was uh, the foremost researcher of her day, you know, mm. pioneer in that respect. So is Margaret still actively investigating this case? She's very interested, she doesn't investigate it now, but that's purely because of an age thing, you know. Um, uh. she, was, she was around in the days of, um, you know, in the 1950s when things were just starting to get going. And she was one of the earliest researchers, along with a few others, you know, in the UK. Wasn't there a story about her coming face-to-face with a UFO in London that landed very, very um, 
close to in the street or something? Wasn't she involved in yeah. some? It, like that? Uh, that was actually in Kent. Oh, was it Kent? Yeah, um, she's written about that and she's spoken about it extensively. She was only a teenager herself, and uh, that particular uh, incident—that's um, sort of what got her interested in it, in the subject. Uh, quite literally, um, a small saucer-shaped craft came down and landed right in the middle of a crossroads in the town. And it was there for quite some time, and there was a massive crowd around it. The police were there and everything. Uh, I can't remember the name of the town now. It'll come to me in a minute. I'm terrible for things like that. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was in the town she grew up in. And um, it's freely available online if anyone just um, uh, searches that and comes up. But um, she uh, she was in feet, within feet of this object, as were dozens and dozens of other people. The police were there keeping people back. There was a lot of heat coming from the object. After a while, it um, it took off, and it sort of rose off the ground, um, and it was a bit that came down the same sort of way, like a leaf comes down, swings yeah. to the side as it drops from a tree, that sort of thing. And um, amazingly, not a, although despite all these witnesses and that, not a peep in the papers. <laughs> That's strange. Uh, and so this was Margaret's um, incident that she was witnessing. Yeah, sure, that got her interesting. Where, of course, she was curious as to why, um, amongst other things, why there was no publicity about this object. Sure. And uh, it's Bexley Heath. pardon? It's Bexley Heath. Bexley Heath. That was it. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, she also discovered that um, at roughly the same time, about a mile away. Uh, another one came down, so there was two actually. Okay, yeah. well that sounds like a topic for another interview. If, yeah. you, if you'll come back to us, so uh, let, let's get back to the the Berwin incident. Um, this was 1974. Yes, it was uh, obviously, as far as most of us are concerned, a long time ago now. What what has kept you interested in this for so long now? Well, I um, I contacted Margaret Fry. Uh, just after 2000 and by 2002 um, she was very open with it she's very open with her notes and that she doesn't hide anything she's not one of these guys you know who hoards information and won't share it with anyone because of course that's counterproductive sure so um, when I um, went to her and I explained my interest in it she said yeah let's sort of collaborate you know and she showed me all the notes and uh, diaries at the time you know and all sorts of things and um but as I went through it, um I I noticed a lot of her, her research was sort of dead ends, if you know what I mean. But they hadn't been followed up, they'd gone so far and um she'd done her research to the best of her ability. Yeah. But of course what we have to remember is in those days it took you three weeks to get the answers to one question because there was no internet. <clears throat> So you wrote a letter and to someone and making an inquiry, a witness or something, you know. You put your stamped addressed envelope in and hope it came back with some sort of useful answer, you know. Yeah, of course. But So there was a, there was a lot of um, loose ends and I, I went over it. And of course, uh, at that time, there was a, a belief, which even Margaret held uh, at the time, that um, there was a UFO crash on the Berman Mountains. 
And when I went through uh, notes and that and, and studied them at length, it became apparent to me that there was something wrong in the sense that there didn't seem to have been any evidence for a crash, you know. Sure. Uh, but clearly there was some, some object on the mountains and there was witnesses to that object. And, and um, the more I got my teeth into it, the more I was getting obstructed and when I was making inquiries myself, I wasn't getting the answers I wanted, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I could take it a lot further than Margaret could ever, you know, ever could in her day. And I just, get a, I just met a wall of um, obstruction. And I'm like one of those ticks that digs itself in, you know. <laughs> okay. Well, what I'd like to do, Scott, if we go back to the actual evening in question. Yeah. Okay. And could you run us through in your own words the timeline of what actually occurred? The, uh, it was the 23rd of January, 1974. It was a Wednesday night. We're talking, we're talking about North Wales. Um, the Bearer Mountains is quite a, a bleak uh, piece of high moorland, really, you know. Yes, of course. And um, it's the sort of place where, you know, you need to be rescued if you sort of tripped and broke your leg type thing. You know, still a few miles from civilization. Yeah. And it was the seventies, and uh, you know, the, not you know, not that many people had cars and things like that. There were still telephone boxes in the villages, you know, and very few people. That was a luxury to have a telephone of your own, sort of thing. Oh, of course, yeah. And um, on that particular night, uh, just after eight thirty, there was eight uh, thirty-eight. There was um, a large air tremor. Now, there are some people who believe that air tremor wasn't natural, and some believe it was natural. I won't go into that, but regardless, there was an air tremor of some description. And as a result of that, it brought people out of their homes over a wide area of North Wales, um, so like a 60-mile radius type thing. Okay. Across the border, people felt it in Liverpool, Manchester, all this. Quite a significant um, event for uh, even, you know, the UK. People came out of the houses wondering what was going on. And um, as a result of that, uh, events which were going on on the mountains, some related, some unrelated to each other, exposed the um, this UFO that uh, was uh, present on the mountains. Right. And uh, everything sort of snowballed from that. <laughs> Okay, so just to go back over what you just said, there's this earth tremor, yeah, and as a result of that, people have come out and then they've seen something up on the mountains, yeah? Uh, yeah, but yes and no. Um, that's where it all starts to get complicated. It's um, it's quite an extensive story. Yeah. Uh, but um, the there's a village called Llandrithlow, and uh, Llandrithlow became the centrepiece of the whole event and uh, that's not necessarily justified uh, the reason it became um, part of the whole event is because uh, people came out of the, ho the homes in that village as they did in uh, several other villages scattered over miles but in their case they came out and some people saw lights flashing over the horizon of a ridge uh, the, the, the hills there going up to um, the summits, they, they, un they undulate. 
so you can see it to the top of the face ridge and then it's flatter yeah another one of course you can only see over the face ridge and there was lights flashing around mm. and because during this air tremor some people across the area uh, not all um believed they heard a sound amongst the rumblings um which only lasted a few seconds uh, what sounded like an explosion sound and when people came out of uh, the house in Hanjiklo and saw lights over the horizon of the ridge, uh, someone put two and two together and concluded there may have been a plane crash. Right, yeah. Yeah, which is you know, perfectly feasible, perfectly logical. Absolutely. Yeah. In, in but, fact, telephone calls were made uh, via the emergency system we call it 999 here yeah. uh, 911 in the state people phoned the police to say that they thought uh, there'd been a plane crash is that right yeah well even the uh, lo- uh, some local uh, police officers themselves believed that because they were also witnesses to these lights you know right and uh, they they were also um, contacting the superiors but um, the events that unfolded was because it was such uh, a large affected area with this air tremor, uh, a large number of members of the public were phoning into the police and the emergency services, and um, the phone lines were jammed up and all this business. And some people made several attempts to get through before they actually got to speak to somebody. <clears throat> and at the same time, people were reporting um, lights in the sky. Uh, aerial phenomena and um, of course all the, the sort of information had been collated by say Margaret Fry and there was newspaper reports in the days after and uh, there was um, the what was a forerunner of the British Geological Survey they sent people down to investigate and they were asking people questions and there was questionnaires to be filled in and all this but um, essentially the locals in around Flandislow thought that there was a plane crash on the hillside above their village and these reports were actually put into the police. Uh, the police uh, at uh, the headquarters was at Colburn Bay up on the coast. Yeah. Probably about 40 miles away from Flandislow. Okay. <clears throat> um, they were concerned enough to open a major incident log and started the search for a suspected plane uh, that had crashed. And then the events then got a bit uh, sort of uh, unusual because um, certain things didn't come into play. Uh, For instance, uh, there'd been a civilian plane crash on the mountains uh, in 1968, so a few years before, and there's a mountain rescue service, which are found all over the hilly parts of the Britain, as you know. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and whenever there's someone breaks a leg, as I mentioned before, or in case of a, like a, a civilian plane plane crash, 1968, they all turn out, and they were always called upon because they know the hills, they know the routes up, they know where to go, where to look for people, all this all sorts of stuff. On this particular occasion, they were kept in the dark. <laughs> they weren't called upon at all. Now, you would imagine if the police opened a major incident log, believing the plane had crashed, they would pour resources into it. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, in fact, the resource they poured into it was very, very <laughs> mediocre. Have you seen a, a copy of this log, Scott? Yeah, yeah, I've got a photocopy of it, actually. And what the, what, what, what the police did was um, it transpired that there seemed to be uh, a number of police officers already in that village, um, hidden away, if you like, in the what was then a police house. Or every village had a policeman. Sure. In a police house and um, a little radio room and all that sort of business. And because all these people pulled out their houses and they were contacting the police, and this um, problem with a suspected plane crash. Okay. They were already there. Do we know why they were there? Uh, well, I've certainly uh, got good reason to believe why why they were there. Yeah, and um, essentially, they, they, they these were ordinary um, uh, ordinary police officers, and one one had apparently come all the way from um, the the west coast, Barmouth, which was like an hour's drive in those days. You know. Sure. Um, and these guys were discovered. Uh, the earthquake was at the 20s or 9, and these guys were discovered uh, by about 20 past 9. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't have got anywhere. They couldn't have got from where they were supposed to be to that village as a result of being called in. They were already there. Okay. It seems that they probably didn't know why they were there. They were probably given a cock and bull story as well. But it seems that the reason they were there was that they needed to be called upon, if necessary, to interfere with the public because there was things going on in the mountains that he didn't want the public to know about. And by and large, it was um, a dark, cold, slightly drizzly uh, January night. And relatively few people would be out and about, you know. Not that you could see anything from the village there anyway, in relation to this UFO. The UFO mm-hmm. was about three miles away. Uh, a little bit more than that, <clears throat> as the crow flies. They couldn't possibly see it from the village anyway. But um, as, as a result of that, uh, say these uh, police officers were, uh, were exposed. What, what sort of number are we talking? Well, we don't know the full number, but um, there was four, if I remember correctly, there were four police officers in a Land Rover that went up the mountain looking for this alleged plane crash, um, squeezed into the back of a Land Rover, which they commandeered. Um, a local farmer who was a teenager then, he drove it because it was his land that he was going on. He knew the tracks in the dark and whatever. Okay, yeah. Once he was off the public road, he took over and he drove the Land Rover. Uh, his neighbour, who was actually babysitting him at the time, because they had a TV, <laughs> he um, he drove on this short stretch of public road. Once they got onto the farmland, uh, Hugh Lloyd, the, the teenage farmer, he took over and drove the uh, Land Rover around where these lights had been seen in the village. But he didn't find anything. But as a result of him talking to the police officers, um, all four of them uh, were non-local. And one of them, uh, as Hugh Lloyd described him, was um, he had a higher rank than the others. He's always said he had pips on his shoulders. So so that would make him at least an inspector? Yeah, you would think so. He was in uniform. Okay. Okay. so there was that, but uh, what was interesting was if there was a, a, a suspected incident of a suspected plane crash outside a village, in those days the local village Bobby, or Bobby's plural, 
would have known every footpath, every person, every household. So you would think you'd count on their local knowledge mm. to get up somewhere fast. But in fact, what they did was they sent four officers who didn't know where they, where they were. They had to go and knock on a farm and say, can we borrow your Land Rover? Okay. <laughs> oh, but, and, oh, by the way, um, we still don't know where we're going, so can you drive? <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Now, in those days... If I do that, when you could send local bobbies, you wouldn't know where to go. Sure. Yeah, and for our international uh, listeners, <laughs> a bobby is basically um, a uh, a colloquial term for a police officer in the UK. Um, now, back in 1974, if you were to phone 999 from that village, yeah. would you be put through to uh, Colwyn Bay, or would you be put through to the local police house? What what would happen there? It seems that most people were put through to Colwyn Bay. Okay. And uh, that becomes a little bit, a little bit more significant in the story, because um, if this this air tremor that took place, one way or another, no matter what caused it, it wasn't anticipated, it wasn't scheduled, it threw a spanner in the works, <laughs> yeah. And of course, uh, many many people sort of jammed the switchboards, uh, ringing the police, and that must have given them a bit of a headache. And, of course, uh, this idea of a plane crash above the village didn't help matters because the police were then forced to go and have a look. And this is what makes me think that the, the local, um, the, the, these police officers didn't really know why they were there because on the neighbouring mountain, uh, the, the mountain above the uh, village of Cadiclo is called Cader Bronwyn. On the neighbouring mountain, which is called Cader Berwyn, um, there seems to have been a um, a military event taking place that involved this UFO, and it seems that senior police officers in the uh, the force in North Wales at the time it was called Gwynedd Constabulary at the time. Right. That was in January, but in April, the police were all reorganised and it became North Wales Police. Okay. Same headquarters, but they just changed the name and it covered all of North Wales then. Um, certainly senior police officers knew what was going on and they, they must have known that there was events going on on the neighbouring mountain and the reason they drafted the police in mm-hmm. was to interfere with the public should they discover what was going on well, when you mean interfere with the public you mean keep the public away from any incident and uh, stuff like that by and large the police weren't expecting any bother at all it would have been just another night and if it hadn't been for that air tremor and people coming out of their houses, this UFO event may have gone, gone, come and gone, and no one would have known about it at all. Sure. But um, as a result of people coming out of the houses, and the police being exposed, and why the police here, and then other witnesses saw things on the neighbouring mountain, and then it all sort of escalated, and since then the authorities have done the best to keep a lid on it. Hmm. It does beg the question, though, Scott, that um, if senior officers knew about it and they drafted officers in to deal with something up on the mountains, what, why would they not have provided them with the appropriate transport rather than having to commandeer a local lad's Range Rover or Land well, Rover? These guys were actually in the village. Yeah. Yeah, and they they would never have gone up onto the mountains. There was never any intention for these guys to go up on the mountains. Mm. They would have been if members of the public had come out and said, hey, there's something suspicious going up on the, on the mountains there, you know. Yeah. 
they would have been used then to sort of suppress that. You know, oh no, you're talking rubbish. Or we'll go and have a look. You wait there, and then you'll go around the corner, have a cup of tea, come back and say there's nothing going on. Okay. That sort of thing, you know. What, what brings you to that conclusion, though? The police that were present weren't equipped to go up on the mountains. Yeah. You know, so the fact that they were there, even there, and they weren't, if they weren't local and they were already there uh, waiting, they, uh, my conclusion there was that um, they were just sat in the police station, idling the time away, uh, and if things had gone according to plan, maybe a couple of hours later or something like that, they'd have caught off whatever the um, operation it was, and they just said, right, go back to wherever you come from, you know. Sure, okay. But they were there to, um, as I used the term, interfere with the public if the public got too nosy about things that were going on, you know. Through your research, have you managed to identify any of those police officers? Yeah, the, um, it's, um, the, the, the ones who were outside who got drafted in, uh, none of them I've been able to identify, although there are plenty of witnesses in the village who can um, uh, testify to the fact that, yeah, they definitely weren't local. And okay. So spoke to these people, Hugh Lloyd being one of them. He, he spoke to all of them in the back of his Land Rover. And um, they were all from far away, but the one who sticks out in his mind was one from Barmouth. Uh, none of them were non-local. I mean, all the police officers there were local guys. You know, they lived in the community. And if you, if, if, and, uh, you know, if you, if you turned up in the village just walking, you had a strange face, all the curtains would be twitching and all that. You know, it's one of those type of places. So um, anything new and unusual uh, didn't go unnoticed, you know. So, um, yeah, it was that sort of place. But um, the local officers, uh, local to Llandrithlo and uh, in the surrounding area, um, they, their involvement in it um, wasn't hidden away or anything like that, you know. Um, there's, there's one officer who, um, uh, in the village, he actually uh, phoned in. The original conversation was recorded in Welsh. That's, that's the language they used. Um, he said um, there'd been a huge explosion and there was lights on the mountainside and he feared that uh, a plane had crashed and that was a police officer phone, you know, phoning that into his superiors. Yeah. Um, in fact, from one of the uh, stories that I read online, I don't know if this is actually accurate, Scott, so maybe you can help me with it, um, but one of the sergeants who responded to this um, went on to become assistant chief constable of North Wales Police. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, he me, um, seems to have a meteoric rise. Okay, uh, but um, but he's a witness to the actual incident. No, he, and actually, he, he's not. Uh, uh, I see, which is the, the why I was asking, because in one of the newspaper articles that I'd read, it actually sort of uh, quoted him as a witness to it, rather than just somebody responding. No, the, um, he was a witness to nothing more than... Uh, an initial belief, as he says, that when he heard this explosion sound amongst the tremor, he and another officer headed towards uh, the town of Bala because there was a dam there. Right, that makes sense. Yeah, and he thought that maybe uh, there might be a problem with the dam. Yeah, yeah, very reasonable as well, especially if there'd been a tremor, absolutely. Well, well, en route. Um, he was then told to uh, proceed to Llandrithlo and 
he changed course and they were driving towards Landreth Lowell and he reported seeing um, an arc of green light across the mountains um, roughly in the direction he was traveling and um, it seems that this arc of light that he, he, he described and he definitely said it was green was roughly where this UFO would have been he, but I don't think he knew that at the time he was no witness to any um, UFO uh, only a small group of people uh, had any uh, view of the object um, near this UFO like but he um, as I say, said earlier he was diverted from um, a trip he was making towards Bala because he thought a dam might have been, you know, been in trouble mm -hmm. air tremor and as he approached Slandreth uh, Lowell, he reported a green arc of light across the mountains, which um, seems to be in the part of the mountains where this UFO was. Well, what time of the evening would that have been? Um, I'm not quite sure the exact time, but um, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming now about just before nine o'clock. Okay, so that, that's about 20 minutes, 22 minutes after the original tremor. Yeah, but you know, it could have been five minutes either way, like type thing, you know. Yeah, of course, yeah. He, he was responding almost straight away to his belief that um, uh, there was a possible um, danger to this dam. So it could, it could, it must have all happened, say, within twenty minutes. But um, he, uh, as I said, he said he mentioned this green light. But uh, from what I can gather. Uh, him and um, uh, this, this other um, officer who was with him in the car, they they were the only ones who seemed to see this green light. No one else seemed to report a green light, and the only other light that came to be was when uh, Hugh Lloyd was taking these police officers round the mountainside in his commandeered Land Rover. Okay. And for a few seconds, probably no longer than ten seconds, in the direction of where again where this. Um, uh, UFO was uh, perched on the mountainside on the neighbouring mountain um, he, he and uh, the other officers saw a white glow it come up it sort of grew in intensity and then sank again uh, down to nothing to, back to the pitch black and that was the only light they reported uh, what was interesting is uh, one of the officers in the um, in the land rover exclaimed uh, there it is. Well, he was. They were looking for a, a plane, a, a crash plane, as they believed, and they probably believed that when they saw this light, that this is the, the plane they were looking for. But in fact, course, that, yeah. that light was uh, over two miles away. So, well, let's talk about what they actually saw and what the other witnesses saw. Um, so we've got Hugh Lloyd who was giving the officers a lift up the mountain in his Land Rover. Um, it, as I understand it, there was um, a nurse looking yeah. at it from a different direction, is that right? Yeah, Pat Evans. Okay. Uh, now, what, what did she actually see? Can you describe that for us? Well, she's accredited with being the first person to actually see the UFO. <laughs> okay. Um, she came into the story because she was the local um, district nurse um, basically every person in the area who was born, she delivered them, you know. She did everything, um, how, um, house visits, um, looking after kids, um, bringing them into the world, all that sort of business. And she knew everyone who was worth knowing. 
And, um... And what did she see? Well, she... Uh, experienced the air tremor like everybody else. Now, she lived in a village called Fandervel, which is three miles further away from Llandrichlo. Uh, now, she felt the air tremor at the same time as everyone else did. Now, she also heard what she interpreted as a bit of an explosion sound. Now, she can't see the Berman Mountains from, as such from where she lived in her village. Okay. The geography, the topography of the land just doesn't allow it. And uh, so she suspected, because she knew planes had crashed on the mountains before, Yeah. she assumed a plane had perhaps crashed on the mountains, but she wouldn't know where. It was just an assumption. Now, she was ringing the police because she thought there'd been a plane crash. Because she was a nurse, she wanted to offer her services if that was the case. Uh, it took her several attempts to get through to the police, but she got through to them just before 9.30 in the evening. Now, at 9.30, the police were already on the mountainside of Buffalo and Rithlow looking for a suspected plane. So they yeah. knew the area where they believed this plane had crashed. So she rings Colwyn Bay. She gets through to them. She explains who she is. And um, she's promptly... Uh, she offers her services and medically trained... Uh, and willing to come along if there's a problem, you know, yeah. twelve hours. And uh, she was told, uh, "Oh yeah, thank you very much. Uh, we'll accept your your offer of help." Uh, but he didn't tell her where to go. They told her nothing. Were they perhaps working under the assumption that she knew exactly where to go for this? I I, I don't know. That's very unlikely. But um, I, uh, they didn't tell her where to go. And I thought it was amazing because the police in the Colwyn Bay knew full well where to send someone. And you would think that someone would say, uh, well, do you, know, do you know where to go, you know? Yeah, of course. But he didn't. So she um, used her own initiative. And what she did, she drove from her village. And there's a road roughly from her village, goes from Bala, really. Um, goes over the Berwyn Hills towards the English border, towards Oswestry, that way. Okay. And it's a bit of a steep climb up from where she is. So she's heading east now, over the hills. And she knew that once she's on the, the topmost part of this road, she gets a view right down the range of hills. And at least she'd be able to see there, you know, if there was something going on. And when she drove up uh, along the road she discovered a bit more than she bargained for because she was uh, she was looking for a plane but she didn't know where and she drives along the road and discovers this huge ball of light sat on the side of the hillside mm. aisle off the road and she pulled up and she was looking at it for about five minutes she didn't she didn't have a clue what she was looking at she was really taken aback by it what, what sort of distance would she have been? Um, I've worked out that she was about a mile to uh, a mile and a quarter away from the object. Okay, and, and do you know what the weather was like on that night? It was um, cold, dark, and slightly drizzly. Okay, but nope. uh, no cloud cover in between her and the object that she's looking at? No, it wasn't even so drizzly that it would really obstruct your view either, you know? Yeah, sure. 
there was no moon that night either uh, in the early days uh, debunkers tried to say oh she was looking at the moon but there was no moon that night it didn't come over the horizon so that was totally discounted um, Jodrell Bank uh, actually gave me that information they gave me all the the, 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 um, the moons uh, for that month the um, and that particular night, it wasn't even over the horizon, so she could not possibly have seen the moon. All right, so we've definitely got that discounted. Yeah. Um, you said a large uh, glowing ball. Um, so you're looking at something that's spherical yeah. in shape, yeah? Yeah. Okay, and what type of colour? It, it, she said it changed colour. Um, it was mostly orangey-red, but there was, um, she says there was odd other colours in it, you know, but it was mostly like an orangey red and she said it was slightly pulsating and she couldn't see anything just this ball of light now mm -hmm. the thing is she was looking at a totally black background yeah. yes that's right yeah so she couldn't say well where she was looking she couldn't say uh, whether it was a large object very close to her or an object further away much bigger you know that's fair yeah, yeah. okay um, but she saw what she saw. Uh, I, I say, I, from my own calculation, I worked out what she was looking at it was about a mile to a mile and a quarter away from where her position. Mm. But she looked at it for about five minutes. Now she had two, her two daughters with her as well. They were teenagers, and uh, they also saw this. And then she drove uh, a few hundred yards further along this road. There was a turning point on the side of the road, so she turned there to face back the way she come. And she stopped, and she looked at it again for a few minutes. <clears throat> and she knew she wasn't looking at a plane, but she didn't know what she wasn't what she was looking at. But she also saw um, small lights that seemed to be zigzagging towards this object. Could this have been people on the ground, perhaps well, walking up, or yeah, yeah, well, almost definitely. But um, she described it originally as a little fairy lights because she seemed to you know. They look like torches from a distance, you know. Yeah. And it said they were approaching this object. But she actually, um, she got a bit nervous about it all because she, uh, the two, the two girls, the two daughters, uh, they they were getting a little bit sort of uh, unnerved by what they were looking at. And um, Pat Evans actually, uh, actually, she told Margaret Fry actually, in an interview in a house uh, some years ago, she said that. Um, she actually thought whatever she was looking at might have been radioactive, and she thought it might bubble the paint on the car. Okay. So she didn't want to hang around. Um, so th when she saw these little lights, she thought they were rescuers of some some description going to whatever this object was, but she knew it wasn't a plane. Certainly, to her, it didn't look like some sort of plane crash. And um, so she got she drove off and she headed home. Um. However, um, originally, she put it about that um, on her way down the mountain, uh, on her way back home, she um, met on the internet, there's loads of rubbish on the internet, but um, she, she met um, an army vehicle coming up the road in the direction she'd come from originally. So she's going back home now, so they met. And they stopped, and there was a, a little bit of chit-chat going on, all very civilised, apparently. Yeah. And um, after a couple of minutes, she went on her way. Okay. So th oh. that that was, what, within the hour of the original incident, roughly? 
Well, this was actually, uh, by now, it was, um, she arrived at the scene, and this is well documented, the, the time the time was very accurate. Mm -hmm. She arrived at the scene about five to ten. Okay, about an hour and twenty minutes. Yeah. But because the police didn't tell her where to go, yeah, she used it her own initiative. She went up that road of her own volition and she discovered what she saw. Now, the amazing thing is, had the police been more honest with her and more open and said, yeah, go to Flandreth Road, there's a police search going on there, that's where we think the plane is, mm. she would never have discovered that. You say that she um, had a conversation with some soldiers in a, an army vehicle. Um, do you know what type of vehicle that was? Uh, no idea. She just said it was an army vehicle. Sure. Okay. Um, but, but again, we're talking what an hour and twenty minutes after the original um, incident, and the army are in the area. Now, that particular area of Wales, I, I certainly know that the Brecon Beacons is used heavily by the army. Um, yeah. What about the Berwyn Mountains? Well, the Berwyn Mountains were also were also used. Probably still are today. Um, used by uh, the military for. You know, exercises, small exercise. The Brecon Beacon, as you mentioned, is the, is the major player. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the smaller areas of Wales, I've seen them myself. I, I do a lot of walking and camping and stuff in the mountains. I've seen soldiers just sort of, you know, all togged up with the rucksacks, you know, yeah. marching across country. So, uh, so in its own right, it's not necessarily strange that there are soldiers in the area. Um, no. It's just um, a coincidence, perhaps. But, um, but w what did they say to her? Um, basically, it was just, um, you stopped her, have you, have you seen anything, that sort of thing. And mm. she related what she'd seen. But these people were clearly going up there anyway. They were going to the vantage point that she had. Um and it was all very civil, uh, yeah, thank you very much. And um, she went on her way and she thought no more about it. She just said, whatever it is, it's uh, it's going to be sorted, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but of course, the next day in um, when the kids are in school, of course, the, the girls are talking about what was going on, what they'd seen and all this. And even the kids, kids being kids with their imaginations, very, very quickly in the local comprehensive school in Bala, they were even saying, oh, it was a flying saucer and little green men, all that sort of business, as, mm. kids, as, as kids might do. Absolutely. Yeah, but, um, yeah, she actually didn't, uh, beyond that, she didn't um, really think any much more about it, and she didn't seem to really follow it up. But um, it laid sort of quiet for, uh, after that, she herself heard stories then of because everyone's talking to each other. It's one of those sorts of communities, and one or two locals uh, apparently had said um, they were aware of um, an army presence even near the village of Andrichlo. Uh And other people have come forward since and said, yeah, they, they drove into the village, sort of you know, ten or past ten, and there was they saw soldiers on the roads and things like this. We're not talking like dozens and dozens of vehicles or anything like that, you know. The internet's blown that up. There's a lot of people here saying that the, the village was swamped with soldiers and there was roadblocks and all this. Well, there was a, um, a photograph in, uh, I think it's the, is it the Daily Post, the local paper, um, yeah. which showed a, a military police um, jeep 
and um, what looked like a four-ton truck as well, um, which in itself is not a lot of soldiers, but um, you know it shows that there's some sort of interest. Do, do you subscribe to the theory that there was a crash, or, or do you think that something's visited and then gone? What, what do you, what do you make of it? I subscribe to the theory that um, a a vehicle of extraterrestrial origin landed on Kadabirwa Mountain that night, stayed a while, and then left. Now, whether it chose to leave of its own volition or whether it chose to leave because it was a unit of soldiers perhaps approaching it, mm. I don't know. But what's certain is there was no crash of that particular object, certainly. There was no crash. It landed quite happily, it stayed a while, and it left quite happily. So, speaking of coincidences like we did earlier, is it then a coincidence that there was a tremor at the same time? Because people don't seem to report earth tremors when uh, UFOs are sighted normally. Is, well, I, it, is it one of these things where several things have happened roughly at the same time? There, there were certainly coincidences. Um, I mean, it was a coincidence that uh, an air tremor occurred. People come out and saw lights on the hillside above their village, and they assumed a plane had perhaps crashed. You know. Yeah, and I think that's a fair assumption to make as well. In fact, those lights were traced to uh, some local lads who were uh, they were out lamping uh, rabbits. Okay. Yeah. And and they, they've come forward. The story all tallies. You know, uh, the police, they were interviewed by the police. Um, that, that that's all above board. They were sure. There, yeah. Within. I mean, for, for those that don't know, lamping is um, well, it's a method of uh, dazing rabbits and other animals for uh, in order to kill them. If you're hunting, um, you you wire up a car headlight to a car battery and just blind the animal. <laughs> so, uh, if that's what they were up to up on the mountain, these boys. Yeah. Well, of course, in those days, they made those lamps crudely, as you say, out of car batteries. Yeah. Uh, one of the interesting things is, I mean, I um, when I left school, I trained in gamekeeping. And I've always been interested in the countryside, and I used to do a lot of shooting and stuff like that, you know. And these uh, various uh, hunting methods and pest control methods and that, um, they were perfectly natural to me. And I was fortunate because of my knowledge of that. Because when I discovered um, some of the uh, attempts to rubbish the event, one of the uh, people who were targeted was this, uh, these lads who'd been uh, out lamping. Now, when the earthquake occurred, uh, people came out their houses at 20 to 9 in the evening and immediately saw these lights on the hillside above them. And they, um, they actually saw these lads uh, lamping. Now, that didn't stop um, the bunkers uh, saying that, in fact, the light that Pat Evans was looking at was their lamp. And there was manipulation of the facts going on and all sorts, and um, the information was all withheld to create a debunking scenario to do away with the idea of a, a UFO presence. Okay. And one of them was that um, uh, Pat Evans actually saw these, the, 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 this, they were described as poachers, but they weren't poachers at all, this poacher's light. But in fact, uh, what was withheld was that these lads, as you've just described as well, the lamps were made in those days from a car headlamp, the crude on and off switch, 
and a, a car battery. Yeah. But extremely heavy to carry. And this is really hilly terrain. You can't walk far with one of those things on your back. No, and of course there's another aspect to that as well. That if you if you have the eye, you know, the object that Pat's looking at, which she described as large, um, but with fairy lights walking up to it. And if we're assuming that those fairy lights are people on foot with torches, then for the debunkers to say that the 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 main light is nothing more than a car headlight, well, that would be small as well. Yeah, well, in fact, um, the drain time on those batteries, even if you were trying to conserve your, the battery energy, is less than an hour. Yeah. And it was documented that um, these lads were on the way home because the lights were dimming. And at um, about 20 past nine, they were halfway down the hillside to the village and these lamps had been switched off because the lamp was dead. And that was at 20 past nine. Yeah. Um, and they actually watched the police going up <laughs> onto the hillside. Okay. Because the police actually found their car blocking the way. And the police moved the car. Yeah. It was, it was in the way. So all the times were all well documented. But that didn't stop um, uh, the people like the likes of Andy Roberts, for instance. He was a well-known debunker of the, uh, the, the case. He said that Pat Evans saw their light even when he knew those lads were off the mountain at 20 past nine. And he knew she was looking at a light at five to ten. <laughs> okay. So you mentioned the debunkers. What other theories are there about this incident and uh, how has it been described and uh, answered away by others? Well, um Every, every excuse under the sun came out of what it was. The most obvious one I've just mentioned there, uh, Pat Evans was looking at the poacher's light. Yeah. In the early days, uh, these lads, um, when they were interviewed by the police, uh, the youngest lad, uh, it was, they, they had a gun. The youngest lad didn't have a license. So they were, they were blagging the police. And when the police interviewed them, said, why were you up on the mountainside? Um they um, said we were camping. <laughs> they actually told them. <laughs> nice camping. time of year to go camping. And it's actually one of the police statements they were camping. But believe it or not, um, in the early days, Andy Roberts, um, if I mentioned him, he actually took this report and said the light that Pat Evans was looking at was their tent illuminated from the inside. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It, but he omitted the fact that they were on a totally different mountain. <laughs> but in fact, their light was extinguished uh, 45 minutes before she even turned up. <laughs> so she could never have been looking at their light. And also, again, they weren't even on the same mountain. <laughs> it's interesting stuff. When, <clears throat> if other people want to learn more about this incident, where should they go to find out more? Uh, well, uh, there's actually a lot of stuff on the uh, on, online, but... Um, the most comprehensive um, uh, stuff is, uh, is, is being getting compiled. Uh, it's a team effort these days. I started off on my own and a little bit Margaret Fry, but more lately, uh, some major headway is being made because there's, there's a bit of a team effort going on now. Mm-hmm. And um, I could never have achieved some of the things that, we, that have been achieved lately uh, under my own steam. I just don't have the time, you know. And um, anyone goes online now, 
and um, you only have to type in Berwyn UFO and the real story will come up. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, did, do you have a website with um, your research compiled on it? I used to have a website, but uh, I, I did away with that uh, about four years ago. I, I saw a uh, documentary uploaded by uh, Richard D. Hall, which had you on there. Yeah. Um, that, that's something that they can look for. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a good documentary. It's, yeah. uh, and I don't know, Steve told me to uh, watch that one. Are you, are you there, Steve? I am. I'm listening. It's, it's, it's actually on the Rich Planet website in, in the three parts, I think it is. Okay. Well, it's, it's definitely worth a watch, Scott. Um, Steve, have you got any questions for Scott? Um, I think not so much a question, more sort of the observation after spending a lot of time in North and West Wales and the South. is It's amazing how how black the area is at night time there's the lack of street lights the lack of you know anything creating a a light even even these days if you can imagine it 40 odd years ago you know lights would 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 be seen lights would be noticed wouldn't they that they are there would be not right if you know what i mean i think in uh, somewhere in south wales now there's some um uh, designated place where it's like a dark, uh, dark skies type thing, you know. So there's not very, li- very little light pollution. So you actually, when you look up at the stars, you actually get a good, uh, a good view of them, you know. Great news if you're an astronomer. Yeah, but um, I say, in the, uh, you know, 40, 40 years ago, forty odd years ago, there was no motorways in Wales, no expressways up the coast, and all this, you know. Um, and the infrastructure, the roads, is pretty much the way it is today, you know. The only thing that's changed is the surface. But there's a lot more people in Wales. The villages have all grown, the towns have grown, there's a lot more light, you know. But say 40 years ago, as was just said, at night time, black was black. <laughs> yeah, sure. But roughly how many people lived in... And this low. Yeah, how many people roughly lived there back in the day? I'm not sure the exact number, but just um, uh, I would say about 300 at the most, scattered over the farms as well, you know. The village, half the village today is English speaking, people have moved in, you know, and, mm-hmm. and there's uh, houses are being built and things like that, and, and, the, and the, it's probably, the population's probably three times that now, over the okay. same, you know. Right. But, um, I mean, that was. Um, what, what's the way forward for this investigation now? Well, I don't think. Um, Unless something catastrophic goes wrong and, and and someone hands over an official file <laughs> that says yeah this really happened you know mm-hmm. um, I don't think there's ever going to be any proof that um, uh, the object that was there was of extraterrestrial origin. Okay, I mean, that's the big question everyone's looking for. Yeah, uh, there's always been reports of um, uh, lights in the sky and. UFOs. I mean, uh, in that documentary you mentioned before, the uh, the Channel Five one, um, one of the guy, yeah, one of the guys in it was um, I can't remember his name now. He was a retired gamekeeper, and he described three, uh, two weeks or three weeks after the event, in a village on the other side of the Bearwins, um, seeing a UFO in the sky. It, yeah. said it was like a, a rugby ball stood on end. And um, he said, no one would believe me. Yeah, it was with a couple of mates, actually. They saw it as well. But he said, no one would believe me uh, if I had to come out the pub. <laughs> but he was on the way to the pub. And he said, yeah. but they're on the way to the pub. He hadn't had a drink. 
And that guy was very useful because he was a local, uh, he worked for uh, the, the local, uh, as a local meteorologist. And right. he, he kept the diary of the weather conditions in the mountains every day for years. <laughs> and he entered this in to his diary, what he'd seen, plus a description of it, you know. And of course, in years, years later, it's um, valuable evidence. Yeah, he's actually you know got it dated when he saw this and what, what time it was and all this, and that's good evidence. Absolutely, people don't have that sort of evidence. You know, people see things all the time, but they don't have the presence of mind to actually record what they're looking at. You know, and a lot of people film things in the sky now with the phones and stuff, but uh, by and large, they're just lights in the sky, and they could be anything. You know, sure, yeah. But um, I was often asked, how could the military have known? Because uh, but we, but we didn't cover before was in the old days, up to about the year two thousand certainly. Everyone, including Margaret Fry, believed there was a crashed UFO on the mountains, and that crash was um, a linking of its presence with this idea that there was uh, an explosion sound. So people put two and two together on May five that the UFO crashed. Mm-hmm. And then stories emerged of a cover-up, there was a clean-up operation and all this business. And uh, and they managed to do this in one night. Okay. Sterilised the place. And uh, if you listen, look at some of the reports online, there was bodies everywhere, alien bodies, some dead, some alive. This ship was blasted to pieces over a wide area. You're not going to clean that up in you know, 10 hours of darkness. And um, there's all sorts of stuff, uh, farmers being booted off the land and all this, and they're restricted. But um, th- th- that was actually relating to another event in 1982, and certain things were sort of put together. And uh, again, the debunkers took um, events in 1982, when farmers were kept away from a, a plane crash, a military plane crash, and said, oh no, they confused it. Um, and uh, the farmers were kept away from the land when they, uh, they cleaned up a UFO crash in 1974, a few years earlier. Right. But uh, that wasn't that wasn't the case. But um, by um, uh, the year 2000, and certainly what by 2002, when I've been looking at Margaret Fry's uh, notes and all the research, the there wasn't a case for a UFO crash. And then as witnesses came forward. Who claim and they saw this thing actually come down, and then people say they saw it fly away. Um, it's not a crash. There was no, you know, that that object that was seen, that object itself certainly didn't crash. It, it just wasn't possible. And um, it seems that uh, this original idea of a of a crash may very very well have been disinformation to tie people up into researching a crash scenario. Right. Divert them away from the real the real things. But people said to me, uh, when they did believe there was a crash, how could the military know that a UFO was going to crash? How could it be in wait for an object that was going to crash right in front of them? Not possible. No. But uh, you mentioned before about people saying that they've seen other things. Well, I I, um, I came across uh, bits and pieces in uh, Margaret Fry's notes and... Um, when I was talking to people like um, uh, Hugh Lloyd, uh, he, he, t- he told me, oh, said people who said they, they saw um, light in the sky uh, two, three weeks before this event, 
And of course, that gamekeeper came forward and recorded good evidence. He'd seen something some you know, two to three weeks after the event. And uh, when I got acquired that information, I thought it, it suddenly became you know, very obvious. The reason that those guys were waiting for it wasn't because it was a crash and they got lucky because it crashed in front of them. Because you couldn't possibly know that. They were waiting for it because it had been coming down regular. And that's how they'd sussed it out. I believe that that object, that UFO, had been, for whatever reason, had been coming down in the Berber Mountains, probably in the same place, for short periods of time, for at least two weeks, and perhaps even an unknown number of weeks before that. Regularly, the authorities became aware of its presence, and on the 23rd of January 1974, they decided to mount some sort of operation against it. And that's why they were there waiting for it. They knew exactly where it was going to come down, because it was been coming down in the same place before. That was my conclusion. Okay. The only way they could possibly have known it was going to be there, and they were waiting for it, known it was going to come down at that spot. Fantastic. It's definitely a mystery. Um, and as you say, without further evidence coming to light, it's one of those things that's going to remain a mystery forever with people uh, trying to work out what happened. Uh, Scott, thank you very much for uh, speaking to us today and uh, for giving us your research and the uh, benefit of your opinion on it. Well, I could have finished this off by saying, uh, Team Crusoe, you're welcome. And uh, not start. Good night. <laughs> Good man. Okay, Scott Felton, thank you very much. independent media. Comments and beliefs of guests do not necessarily reflect the views of those behind this podcast. Thank you to Dutch musician Michette for our great theme tune. Visit his site at michette.com or look for his work on SoundCloud. Please visit our website at anomaly.co.uk and email us through studio at anomaly.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at AnomalyCast. Watch out for the latest episode of Anomaly.